Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am joined today by my friend Robert Mixa, who is a fellow of the Word on Fire Institute and been on the podcast once before, Robert, or yeah, twice? Yeah. Once? Well, once before. All right. Well, yeah. we'll do it again. We'll 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 get the we'll get the count up there. Uh, <laughs> but I'm excited to have you back on. I read a couple of Thanks, your recent sir. pieces on the Word on Fire Institute blog uh, and thought that'd be fun to just have you on and talk about these things. The first of them was what I'll call the Unseen Realm piece. And it was your exploration of how there's a renewal of interest in new age ideas and ideas that transcend the strictly sort of materialist world around us. Uh, and I've been thinking about this for a year or two now in some detail. Uh, because I read an article in the New York Times, and I don't, even, I don't remember when this was, probably probably a year ago, uh, and I'm going to look it up while I talk. And it was a, an article about a renewal of interest in astrology apps. So mm. our generation, Robert, is going out there and downloading, here it is, April 15th, 2019. So I, I'm corrected, uh, almost three years ago, venture capital is putting its money into astrology. So people like you and I are going out there, Robert, and saying, I'm going to buy a subscription, <laughs> five bucks a month, eight bucks a month, whatever, $60 a year for the bargain discount. Uh, I'm going to go buy the subscription and, and I can rely on this app to interpret cosmology for me, the positioning of stars and planets, and then tell me what I can expect to get in my future from that. There's something very, um, there's something very anti-scientific in the, and I, I use scientific in sort of today's modern use of the term, so, something very anti-scientific in that. But there's something I think that speaks to our deepest needs, our deepest desires, and really this innate recognition in the human heart that there is something more than strictly the material world. Now, obviously, I'm not endorsing astrological apps. Uh, I'm not endorsing astrology. In fact, I, I condemn astrology. But there, there's something in the in the resurgence of interest in astrology that speaks, I think, to this desire, this recognition of the reality of the unseen realm. Uh, what do you make of that, Robert? Yeah, well, I, I didn't know about that that piece in the New York Times. But you know, my uh, the way I really started to realize that this is something people are interested in is just my basic field study in used bookstores um, and also in the classroom with high school students who, you know, they didn't have like any of the Christian terminology, even the basics of the biblical narrative down, but they were all talking about astral self or astral form and kind of using transcendent language in a very new agey way. And so that, that really, uh, I mean, I, I, I took that seriously. Um, and they took it seriously. At first I thought this was just some kind of like boutique thing, you know, that, uh, Oh, here's us, you know, consumerist, you know, um, materialistic, um, moderns. And we're just going to revel in this little thing on the side. And in a way, I think like, um, I think, kind of something like the will to power and it all being about the self and just, you know, different differentiating today's practice of these things from maybe the more ancient mm -hmm. uh, way of practicing it is important. And in the article, I, I referenced David Bentley Hart's book, I think uh, no article called Christ or nothing, which gets at a lot of that um, kind of it being about the, the, the self um, it's important, but at the same time, you're right. I think it's an expression of this desire for something more than just living in kind of this atomistic, meaningless world. It's a search for meaning. And if they're looking to the stars for that, I mean, we should be there to point them beyond that. But, you know, in documents like the church had a great document called, I think it's called Christ the Water Bearer. Um, Jesus Christ, the water bearer came out, I think in what, 1998 or something there. It's an excellent document. And it actually says, yeah, there, there actually, there, there is this meaning to the cosmos. There, there is, you know, a world beyond your head that's full of, of spirits. And the, the church doesn't really declare much about this, but it's, it's pointing everything to Christ in the end. Um, so I think that was my goal was to take, their desire for meaning seriously. And if they're finding it in things like the new age, well, I'm there to acknowledge that and appoint them beyond that. Yeah, that's, uh, I think it's, it's great to have an educator to, or to be an educator that is attuned to these needs and students, uh, mm. because they need to be pointed to 
what is beyond that. I mean, you know, Richard Dawkins, for example, just to use like a sort of classic stereotypical, stereotypical example of an atheist, Richard Dawkins looks at someone who's interested in astrology and says, you're wrong and you're wrong because the only realities around us are material realities, right? That which we yeah. can taste, touch, smell, et cetera. Those things that we can apprehend with our five physical senses, those are the things that are real. And there's not even a plausible physical mechanism by which the cosmology has any impact on your personal life. So any belief in the linkage between the two is, is absurd, you know, on its face. Uh, you know, Dawkins is, is right, obviously, that astrology is not true, but he's wrong on the reasons for why it's not true. It's not true because it, it has to do with these things that sort of transcend uh, the five senses, it's it's untrue because it's untrue, right? And it's untrue for other reasons. And the, the as a Catholic, uh, we can recognize that the reason it's untrue is because it is not grounded in Christ, Jesus Christ, the water bearer, as you said, and as this, this document that I'm looking at from the Vatican says. Um, this document is, uh, is important, and I think it's actually prescient, too. It was written in, I think you said 2002, early 2000s, 2002. right? Okay, yeah. Um, 2002, 2000, maybe it's 2003, early 2003. Um, mm -hmm. one of the questions is why has new age grown so rapidly and spread so effectively? And let me just read uh, a few sentences here. Whatever questions and criticisms it may attract, new age is an attempt by people who experience the world as harsh and heartless to bring warmth to that world. As a reaction to modernity, it operates more often than not on the level of feelings, instincts, and emotions, anxiety about an apocalyptic future of economic mm -hmm. instability, political uncertainty, and climatic change plays a role in causing people to look for an alternative resolutely optimistic relationship to the cosmos. I mean, that sounds like it could be written today, doesn't it, Robert? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it is significant that New Age has enjoyed enormous success in an era which can be characterized by the almost universal exaltation of diversity. Western culture has taken a step beyond tolerance in the sense of grudging acceptance or putting up with the idiosyncrasies, idiosyncrasies of a person or a minority group to a conscious erosion of respect for normality. Normality is presented as a morally loaded concept linked necessarily with absolute norms. For a growing number of people, absolute beliefs or norms indicate nothing but an inability to tolerate other people's views and convictions. In this atmosphere, alternative lifestyles and theories have really taken off. It is not only acceptable, but positively good to be diverse. I mean, really, for being written in 2003, incredibly prescient, I think. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of this stuff also bears on some of the, the gender, almost body, sexuality questions that um, are popping up today. Um, I think, I think the two of them kind of go a little bit hand in hand. Um, and I think that the, the issue is actually, what is, what is, what is the, re, what is reality? It's a metaphysical question. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you, the, the question of like self-identity, how do you define that? Um, it's something that people, people are searching, they're, they're searching for some kind of meaning, um, and significance in, in their life that they, they actually have something like. Um, they have something like a vocation of something there and they're looking for something like God's providence. Um, but they just, uh, in a way, this stuff is not gonna, is gonna help them in that. Yeah, so. I, I completely agree. I think you're hundred percent right. Um, in your article about this, this, uh, sort of unseen realm, as we'll call it, uh, yeah. you mentioned that you used to buy into Max Weber's view of modernity. Um, and I'm not a, I'm not a favorite scholar, but like you, I used to think that we're all a bunch of positivists now, right? And um, I've shared a little bit of this on the podcast before, but at Oxford, I did my graduate thesis on international relations, but more specifically, this, this turn in the post-World War II era away from an emphasis on sort of the anthropological sinful identity of man and towards this view that, hey, look, we really botched some things, two world wars, millions of people dead. The way to overcome this is to form a new League of Nations, we'll call it the United Nations, and to just do social study after social study until we can really isolate the variables that make human peaceful coexistence possible. Um, and so it really, the, the idea there is that this, the social sciences took a very positivist turn. What can we, uh, what can we identify about the physical world around us? And that is how we achieve human flourishing. And so, mm -hmm. so like you, I used to think that's what, that's what we are. Like we we're just in this, we're in the 21st century. Now we're just marching, marching inexorably towards this positivist framework where the material world is the only thing we see. I now think I've, I've now changed this uh, this idea. I now think we're really in a post-positivist landscape, 
where the material world is now seen as something that is probably, well, actually, I, don't, I was going to say it's sort of ontologically antecedent, like foundational to the sort of metaphysical world. I actually don't even know if that's the case, because now I think we, we are, we've arrived in this post-positivist state where, yes, it's true, the positivist world is what we largely apprehend, but our, our identities even, you know, our, our sort of feelings and our emotions are obviously not positivist. They're completely uh, subjective, but they're almost even more valid than the completely objective physical realities in which we inhabit. Um, and I don't exactly know why that is, but I think, um, I, I don't know why we've sort of already moved beyond the positivism, um, but there's something good in that. And the good news for the Catholic is, hey, there's this recognition that the physical world is not all that there is. The bad news is that our, our post-positivist mentality emphasizes all the wrong things because it is like, like you mentioned, David Bentley Harder pointed out, it's all introspective and it's all about like, how do my feelings uh, make me uh, uh, how do my feelings sort of make me express myself towards other people? Um, and, and how can I always validate my feelings no matter what they are? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, as you, as you talk this through, I'm, I'm thinking of, of Marx an awful lot. Um, Augusto Donoche, I'm kind of getting into him now and just kind of seeing how Marx in some ways finds his fullest expression mm. in something like the consumerist West. Um, in terms of when you said, you know, we have to look for, it's not the problem, like something like the fall in man, but it's getting in like all these conditions, right. To realize something like a, like a utopia. Right. And there's no really meaning in the world, but the, pro that we then have to conform ourselves to, but it's like, we have to, um, kind of get in this project of self-creation. And so Possibly like a lot of the things that we're seeing now and what you're calling post-positivism is just, you know, you know, be oneself, realize oneself, right. whatever right. that may be, yeah. um, which is oftentimes a very good way that all these companies can come sell their products. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really interesting insight. You know, my my thoughts on Weber are changing a little bit. I, um in grad school, we had to read the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, this is not the professor's uh, uh, fault, but I kind of had this conventional view of of Weber, which which probably I wasn't very like attentively reading the text, which was like, OK, yes, um, Protestantism, particularly uh, Calvinism. Okay, led to like this the sense of worldly calling. You don't have the sacraments anymore, so people find their salvation through something like savings. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then you have the rise of capitalist economy and all that, and you gradually then have the the disenchantment of, or if you want to say the um, the, the cosmos is no longer sacramental. Um, but you know, I've been reading this book uh, called. The Myth of Disenchantment. Uh, it's got a kind of crazy uh, cover here. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> but it was published by the University of Chicago so Press. Is, is that Faber um, on the front? Uh, you know what? Uh, I don't think it is. Oh, okay. uh, I don't think it's Faber. But, it's someone um, who's very disenchanted, though. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, you know, this this book is is fascinating. Um I have to admit, when I first listened to, I listened to it on Hoopla. And, oh yeah. You know when you're when you're you're driving or walking the dog, you're you're not as attentive as right, you sure, should be, sure. especially here in Dallas. I mean, gosh, horrible drivers. So I'm 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 getting upset all the time, um, and so I I didn't like listen to it as attentively as I should have. But I've been going through this, um, uh, and I mean, this is just a, a fascinating history. Um, and it's making me rethink so many of the con conventional, if you want to say myths, not trying to say that, you know, he's now going to tell you the true story. He still thinks he's kind of telling another myth. Yeah. Um, so he's got, he's, he has some, some issues. His name is Jason Jopeson Storm. Um, interesting guy. Um, I found this. I'm going to put but, this, put this, uh, a link to this book in the show notes for, uh, listeners who want to, want to pick up a copy or get it from your library. Yeah, but it goes through like a bunch of figures, one of um, which is Max Weber. Mm. Um, and he shows kind of like how this conventional view that we have of, of his view is almost like, oh, yay, okay, finally, we have the disenchanted world. Um, 
but he was intensely interested in things like mysticism. Mm, uh, so he, yeah, he was not like some kind of rationalist in the sense of, you know, okay, let's just try to have something like this pure science and all anything like spirits and all that stuff. We're just going to put aside as kind of an obscuritism that, you know, doesn't belong in this new age. No, he, he was intensely interested in this stuff and he even thought of himself in a way as something like a myth, a mystic. Hmm. And even though he didn't think that there was going to necessarily be something like a re-enchantment, he kind of was, he was kind of was hoping. For yeah. That. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And what he does in this book though, is he takes so many of these early 20th century scientists, um, like famous, uh, Madame Curie mm-hmm. and shows how they were interest fascinated by the spiritualism. They were going to mediums all the time. And so this, this mm. blending of magic and science, um, kind of went together. Yeah. So that is really interesting. I wonder, so yeah, that's, that does make me also rethink a little bit of what I have thought about sort of the, the march of, of science. I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's the same today or, or if mm. there are certain, certain sciences that are more limited in this sort of, uh, enchantment. Um, you know, for example, Curie, I don't know how many nuclear physicists today, uh, uh, you know, go to mediums or get their palms read or have an astrology app on their phone. You know, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's more than I think, but I wouldn't think that many, but I, I do think, yeah. you know, Silicon Valley, uh, the place where all of our technologies, um, that we have in our, in our phone pocket or in our, in our pockets on our phones are, are made. Um, it's very popular in Silicon Valley to not be Christian. In fact, it's unpopular to be Christian, but it's very popular to be spiritual, but not religious. And so yeah. there is, there is definitely this enchantment you know it's it's also um it's not something you can question people on right you can never ask them what exactly they believe but it's it's almost expected that you'll be spiritual but not religious you know that you won't scoff at people's at at people using a you know a meditation app on their phone um mm -hmm. you'll just let them do that and respect them for it because you probably do it too yeah yeah so yeah how to read that too with this age kind of where uh you know thomas jefferson said Right, it, it neither breaks my leg, my leg, nor picks my pocket. Right, whether my my neighbor is Buddhist, Christian, yep. or yep. or an atheist. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's interesting too that like yoga and like kind of this almost if we want to say cult of well being. Yeah, um, is taken over, but yet still are they materialists? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, the interesting thing is, and this is again, you know, in, uh, in accordance with David Bentley Hart's thesis, but the interesting thing about this whole sort of wellness revolution is that it is, uh, if not primarily, at least largely sort of immaterial, uh, in the sense that, you know, yeah, people do intermittent fasting to boost their wellness and whatever, but also there's a lot of yoga and there's sort of transcendental meditation, meditative practices, um, this whole spiritual, but not, but not religious aspect to it. But all of it is pointed inward. So why do people do it? It's because it makes me feel good, right? Like I have to do, mm. have to do my yoga meditation. This isn't me, obviously. I'm just <laughs> as an example. I have to do my yoga meditation in the morning, so that I can feel like calm and ready to tackle the day, right? Or, mm. um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I have to have to do do my headspace meditations uh, to calm down, so that I can sleep better and get better sleep at night. So it's still very. Um, introspective in that sense and geared towards a fundamentally materialist end perhaps and maybe that's the difference i also think there's a there's a lack of conviction now um going back to my silicon valley example no one wants to say what's wrong um and no one really wants to say what's right uh, unless it's only with respect to your own frame of reference right like this is right for me this feeling is valid for me i can't say what's valid for you um i tend to do you know yoga uh every morning and robert maybe you do something different right but like mm. it, it works for me i can't say what is good for you so there is this sort of lack of conviction that we're we're unable or, or afraid perhaps to say what is actually true and we just are, are willing to recognize everything as equally valid and true which is i think an interesting turn it's different from the disenchantment question but it's it's maybe even more interesting because it still gets at the heart of 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 the enchantment because we're asking like which you know, it's kind of like like the the McIntyre question, right? Who's justice? Which rationality? Like, who's uh, who's unseen realm, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, getting at the question of truth, um, I know uh, Michael Hanby, uh, one of Larry Chad's I like friends, Hanby a lot, one of my yeah. teachers. 
Oh yeah, he has. He's just a. He has a lot. An interesting take on this, um, especially how he kind of focuses in on on John Dewey and also the importance of. I brought up Thomas Jefferson earlier, mm-hmm. but uh, Jefferson's view on a lot of um, a lot of this, um, in the sense that you know those. If you want to say hard truth questions, um, as opposed to kind of a, what what Matty Mo might call soft truth yeah. are just, we just, we're not going to go there. And right. so there's really right. no interesting question being asked in the, That's in so the true. public realm. Yeah. And so, you know, things like contemplation. Um, yeah, you say, you're right. I think in, in the sense that it has a introspective function, but what we need to do with the term, even transcendence um, and what we need to do is in helping those who are, are look are spiritual, but not religious is to see that, yeah, they're only going to have that true transcendence in relation to another, um, namely God, who's given to himself in Christ. And, and that I feel like that, I like what I was trying to do at the end of this article was try to open up something like the need for mystical theology mm-hmm. and, and really exposing students to the, uh, the church's, you know, 2,000-year mystical tradition which, you know, obviously is centered in Christ, but finds in some ways forerunners in some Jewish mysticism, but also in some Greek, you know, Platonic mysticism. Um, I tried doing that in the classroom, and it, this was something that a lot of the students were never exposed to, but they're, they were fascinated by. Yeah. So mysticism, I think it's so important. Yeah, I mean, um, I think I think you're you're right. Uh, it's something that's not lost on me as I work for Hallow, you know, this Catholic prayer meditation app. And that's one of the things that Hallow is trying to do is is make people aware of this 2,000-year tr- Christian tradition of mysticism, some of which draws, as you mentioned, on, on earlier traditions. Um, because I think, I mean, I talk, I talk to a lot of lapsed Catholics, as, as I'm sure you do, probably more, even more than me, given your interaction, given your your position at Word on Fire. Um but a lot of a lot of people who are lapsed Catholics, like they they went to Catholic school, and to them it was just a bunch of bunch of rules. You know, maybe they, they got their hands wrapped with rulers by nuns, and they were just told to get back in line when they got out of line. And when they asked a question about you know why do we believe Jesus rose from the dead, the answer is just well that's because the church teaches that. So you know it, it's true because the church says it's true. Yeah. Um, there are much better reasons, you know, much better reasons for believing that it is true beyond simply uh, this is in you know Ludwig Ott's fundamentals of Catholic dogma. But we don't give people a chance to really engage with those questions. Um, and so that's not about mysticism per se. But when we reduce the church to just this like this more or less from the outside, arbitrary looking set of dogma, of course people are gonna leave. That's not gonna that's not gonna enchant. So you bring up a really yeah. interesting point here that we have sort of disenchanted the church even um, yeah. by reducing it to a catechism, right? The catechism is great. I love the catechism. It's a fantastic catechetical tool, as it should be. But the catechism is not the essence of the faith. The essence of the faith is Jesus Christ, uh, around whom all the universe coheres. It all holds together, um, yeah. as Paul tells us in Colossians. So, yeah, we need, we need a reenchantment of of the Catholic imagination before we even can talk about reenchanting the world. Yeah, um, Larry Chap, was it on your show, Zach? Or, which he said. Uh, yeah, the, the catechism is important, but you just can't you I think know, you did cite the catechism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned it's kind of this like this positivism thing. I mean, it's just like this is kind of what ticks me off a little bit with some apologetics that I see. It's like people, you know, ask a question and then you cite the catechism. Right. But, you know, it's like, OK, yeah, but they don't even hold the church as an authority. Right. So why? Why? You know, why should they care? So. Yeah. Yeah, what we need to do, I think, is just really, really try to, like, kind of address the di- desires of the human heart for that encounter mm-hmm. uh, with with the fullness of meaning, namely Jesus Christ. And this is why I'm so attracted to the work of, of Luigi Giussani, um, you know, in a, com- in a kind of communist world that probably is, is in, in terms of worldview, like, similar to if you want to say just the kind of like materialist, um, almost technological way we view things, um, he came in there into, and he posed, he proposed the gospel again. So, yeah, I mean, there's just, um, 
I encourage everybody to look at Jasani. Um, he, he's really good on this stuff, but I do, I agree with you that the church, what I got in, in high school was a real strong emphasis on Catholic social teaching, which is great. And so I knew about solidarity and subs, not so much subsidiarity, but, um, solidarity was like really emphasized, yeah. but they never really put it in the context of the church's like doctrine. Mm. I mean, there was all this emphasis on the pastoral, but it was never informed by the doctrinal. Right. And, um, you know, for me, there was, I, I didn't connect the Eucharist with actually feeding the hungry. Uh, this, there was, there was a disconnect for me. So I just thought, well, well, if that's what Catholicism is, then like, why, why, why go to mass? Yeah. Uh, what's the point of, of the Eucharist and the whole gospel, to be honest, didn't really make much sense. Um, but I think what we need to do really is, is do a better job of connecting the two and the central centrality of the Eucharist is, is really, really important here. Um, so, I mean, the work of David Fagerberg uh, about like connecting the doctrine of like liturgy, but then also going out into the world and and in some ways bringing the world into the liturgy and having that, if you want to say, liturgical cosmos, uh, seeing all things like that and man as a high priest and all of this kind of stuff that we're, uh, which is the Catholic view, um, is so needed today. I'm not familiar with the work of David. Um, so Luigi, <clears throat> Father Luigi Gisani, uh, I think servant Gisani, of God, yeah. servant of God, Gisani, Luigi Gisani, I think so, yeah. is the yeah. founder of Communion and Liberation. But uh, yeah. I'm not familiar with David Fagerberg. I just looked him up, professor of liturgical studies. Oh, yeah. At he, Notre he, Dame. You got to have him on. Um, he's, a, he's a big Scandinavian. I mean, he, he I mean, he's got this, he's, this this fantastic beard and flow going on. He looks great in his picture here on the Notre Dame website. And, yeah, and every time I see him, he's wearing sandals, wow. even up in South Bend during wow. the winter. Um, yeah, but he his he he's so good. I mean, he's he's like the Alexander Schmemann. Hmm. Uh, you guys yeah. probably know him. Yeah, of Catholicism. High praise. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, the the liturgy for him is kind of the key that opens it all. Um, so, uh, you know, I encourage you to take a look at his works. Um, I, I gave my students this little, uh, brochure just that he wrote called like why the mass. Mm. And, um, he just, he just opens up this kind of liturgical anthropology man or human being as priest and the whole cosmos as liturgical. And so every, wow. every, he, he's really good at connecting all the dots and, um, like Alexander Schmemann kind of totally opening up the the catholic thing for you yeah very cool yeah. i'm gonna see if i can get him on that's a great suggestion um let's move on and talk a little bit about the metaverse robert you also wrote oh, yeah. a recent piece about the metaverse uh and the metaverse in in most of my social circles is kind of a punchline uh mostly mostly since facebook announced its efforts to rebrand move away from some of the policy distractions and problems it's caused for itself relating to digital privacy and censorship rebrand <laughs> to meta facebook is no more now it's meta and uh they're in the words of mark zuckerberg they're fully pivoting to the metaverse uh, i saw i saw an ad you've probably seen the same ad for the metaverse um that looked absolutely terrible it, it, it had someone is who this the super bowl ad uh i actually don't know if it was in the super bowl uh let me see okay. they had one there which yeah okay well tell, tell me about the super bowl ad what was that one like well I, I mean it was just kind of like showing the movement from like uh it was like a Chuck E. cheese type of um what do you call those Chuck E. cheese robot dolls like uh remember they used to sing like, and like uh, not like a rock'em sock'em robot no, no, it was like, remember, you go get eat your pizza, and then you'd have these robots, there are these things singing for you, and they're like, I don't know, it was like a big dog, and uh, he's... <laughs> oh, it, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I know you're talking about. What do you call about. those things? Yeah, I don't um, even know, I don't even know. Anyway, see, it's in the past, yeah. and so they're, they're moving now into the future, uh, but what in the past was, you know, is no longer needed today... Hmm. Well, we're going to then bring that thing into the metaverse and it's going to have this community and it can connect with all its friends and buddies. And, you know, just by putting on these goggles, um, it's somehow you're going to you're going to enter into this land of 
of, of bliss. Yeah. So um, it really, those goggles, I mean, they're just these huge things. I mean, that alone did not, yeah. con- still has not convinced me to, to, to go meta. Not at all. So, uh, yeah, the commercial I saw sounds about as bad. It, there was there was someone who looked kind of like Kristen Bell. I don't think it was actually Kristen Bell, but looked like Kristen Bell playing this main character who puts the goggles on in her living room. Her husband is, I think, in the kitchen behind her. And then she enters the metaverse and she's interacting with all these people in the metaverse, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was very like upbeat and, you know, kind of fluorescent colors uh, in a in a very artificial contrived sort of way. And this whole time she's interacting with people in the metaverse and her husband is literally in the same physical room as her, but she's not interacting with her husband because she's interacting with people in the metaverse, of course. Um, And someone pointed out on Twitter that this really looks like The Good Place, if you've seen the television show, The Good Place. And, uh, oh, okay, oh man. Well, the premise of The Good Place, this is is a pretty major spoiler, so listeners fast forward like 20 seconds if you don't wanna hear the spoiler about The Good Place. The Good Place is heaven. It's billed as heaven in the beginning. And it's like, you know, you can have as much ice cream as you want, any kind of food you want. It's a perfect place with perfectly manicured lawns, et cetera. But it's actually hell. Uh, And it's like an experimental hell where uh, one of the chief demons wanted to see how much he could make people suffer if he gave them what they thought was heaven, um, despite them not having earned or deserved heaven. And they're really just the sort of like infinite loop of um, hedonistic pleasure, right? (laughs) And so so, uh, someone pointed out that like here we have you know, someone who looks like Kristen Bell in the ad, it's very sort of like good placey and then it makes it look so perfect. And they said like, you can tell <laughs> that true. this is actually the bad place because they make, they try so hard to make it look like the good place. And I thought that was really <laughs> appropriate uh, and shows the pitfalls of this, like Facebook is trying to, to construct for us this meta world where nothing ever goes wrong. Like all these avatars are just always smiling and you can literally do whatever you want. And if something makes you uncomfortable, you can just digitally exit uh, into another experience. Um, I think there, there's there's talk about like taking the metaverse into dating. Like imagine imagine going on dates with your Oculus headset sitting in your living room and talking to someone is, else sitting in. It's just such a bizarre concept to me. I mean, the the, the goggles um, themselves aren't they like uncomfortable enough? They're Why, at least heavy. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've never worn one, but and they look yeah they look yeah, uncomfortable. They look ridiculous. But, is what they look. Yeah, it, it does sound kind of like that. Yeah, that. Um, seeming heaven which is actually hell yeah that's that's good that's it's, good. it's i would say the good place um, is worth it's worth a watch for season one i think it kind of went downhill after that but season one you should you should check it out okay is yeah. that is that with um what's his name Ugh, who, uh, what's that show boston cheers yeah yeah his name? It's, uh, uh D- um, dancing right ted dancing oh yeah. ted dancing yeah yeah okay okay that's yeah it. yep okay i think i know i i think i know that show andrew pettiprin was talking about it Yes, because um, yes. it, it recently ended, right? Uh, I think it did. I stopped watching after I think the third season because it's you know a lot of these shows have have shelf lives, and uh, when it passes the shelf life, it's 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 out of original ideas and just gets kind of ridiculous. So, hmm. Hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, the metaverse, man, it's crazy. I I don't know. I, I I'm I have to be careful because sometimes I can sound like a luddite and. Um, yeah, but I'm the guy who's talking, who's like tweeting things about, you know, why we should all be Luddites. Um, but, um, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to my phone. For, but uh, anyways, it just, to me, like, especially you see in the Wall Street Journal, them talking about buying real estate in the metaverse. I mean, I don't, I don't understand this stuff to begin with. Um, but yeah, like having friends and this like perfect existence that doesn't involve anything like risk. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah, it seems like hell. Um, but I actually, before the whole metaverse thing and before COVID and like all this talk of just living online and that being okay, um, I, I was reading Hubert Dreyfus's book on the internet. Um, Never read it. Heard yeah, Hubert Dreyfus. I mean, he he's an interesting, an interesting cat. I mean, that guy, he was uh, I think an atheist, but friends with like people like Charles Taylor and a bunch of Catholics. And he he was um, a philosophy professor at um, at Berkeley, um, but before that, he taught at MIT, mm. and he was famous for kind of being the uh, the school's phenomenologist. Um, he studied, I think, the thought of 
of uh, Martin Heidegger and was really kind of influential in popularizing Heidegger out here in the States. Um, but he was extremely critical of uh, the artificial intelligence crowd and some of the what he thought was hubris mm-hmm. back in like the 1960s and 70s. Um, but when the internet um, started, I think he wrote the book on the internet in like the late 90s and then it came out with the second edition in yeah. the early 2000s. So this was before the Facebook or meta um, age. And, um, but all the insights that he had in that book, like what would this online community, cause he talks about second life a lot. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm familiar with second which life. Which is kind of, I mean, the, what I know about second life is, uh, actually the metaverse is similar to that mm-hmm. in some respects. Um, but he just has a great analysis, um, of it there and kind of comes at it from this phenomenological way of, of, um, of viewing things, but he talks about the importance of embodiment, the importance of risk, um, all these things to live a genuinely human, human yeah. life. And so I was trying to draw people's attention to that. Um, and, and I actually wrote a little something on that before, before COVID, but, um, I thought, well, maybe I need to like redo that a little bit in light of all these things. Mm-hmm. And now meta, um, redirecting people to that book again yeah it's a good idea um well i I appreciate your piece uh and you did mention the dreyfus book in the piece i want to pick up this on the internet as well uh it's it's really interesting to see how how presciently some humans can think about these things his points about that you just mentioned about risk i'd be curious to read more about what he says about risk because that's one thing that has struck me like risk one of the things we don't give risk credit for is shaping our character right but it, it plays an immensely important role in shaping our character because through risk, we build courage. Uh, and through risk, we understand more about the nature of our embodiments and we understand how to make prudential decisions to best protect those that we love and ourselves. And so when you have something in the metaverse, risk is almost zeroed out. You know, I think like my example previously about going on dates in the metaverse, right? If a date's not going well, <laughs> you take off the headset, right? Like you disconnect, you're done. Never have to see this person in real life. You have no idea who they are. When it, <laughs> when a date's not going well in real life, like you've got to deal with it and you have to, you have to work through that and you have to work through the awkwardness of it. I mean, same thing mm-hmm. with like, you know, working up the courage to, to ask, ask a girl on a day. I mean, this is something that Andrew and I talked about a little bit in our last conversation about like the lack of romance in the movies. Um, we're entering this age where romance using air quotes for people who are listening to this romance uh, <laughs> is much more easily obtained through, you know, a, a computer screen than it is by like, going out to a bar and meeting people. And so that's like the easy button. Um, now that's obviously not real romance. That's, I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole point is that's not real romance, but that's the easy button. And the metaverse is like the easy button for life. And so there's no character formation that happens in the metaverse. And that's one of my, one of my biggest concerns about it and what it portends for us as a whole. Because it's through it's through acting through our embodied souls that we actually build character, and it's through building character that we become the people that God wants us to be. That we really achieve eudaimonia, human flourishing. Yeah, he, there's no eudaimonia in the metaverse. There's there's hedonia, right? There's just like fulfillment of pleasures and the things that make you feel good, but there's no eudaimonia. That's that's the big problem as as I see it. Yeah, yeah, I, that's that's well put. Um, yeah, uh, Dreyfus. You should look at, oh, I think, with his brother, who was, I did a lot of work for the, the, the Air Force. Um, they did a lot on uh, skill um, acquisition. Um, and so they, he, he actually, I think, for, um, yeah, for the United States Air Force, they, they wrote up um, uh, uh, something, uh, the, distinct, the five distinct stages. I see this five-stage um, skill acquisition model. Wow. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, this is really important to keep in mind how to become an expert in something. Uh-huh. And, um, part of that, yeah, is taking, is taking risks. Um, at like a certain point, right. You just gotta like throw the child into the swimming pool yeah. and let them swim. I mean, uh, but today we just like are, we're not, we're not throwing people into those types of situations anymore. I'm not trying to glorify risk taking sure. just for the sake of risk taking. 
Like, you but know, the thing we, is, like, living is a risk, right? Like, being alive entails risk. And so, yeah. you know, and this, this I think, is relevant to a lot of sort of COVID discussions that I've had privately with people over the past two years. But there's no such thing as a zero-risk life. It does not exist, right? Yeah. There is only yeah. a life in which risks are balanced and prudentially accepted or not accepted. That's, that's, yeah. that's what life is. Yeah. Yeah. And like, too, to become a full integrated human being, to have that eudaimonia, that full flourishing, as you said, um, we need to like, instead of breaking up with someone yeah. uh, through text messaging, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you should go face to face and explain your, be in that uncomfortable situation. Um, but unfortunately, we're just not, we're not, um, you know, seeing the need for that, for real character formation. So it, I'd be interested, you know, Zach, since you, you know, with the Air Force background, um, like the military, I mean, I'm sure the military is trying, is like wondering, okay, what this, I don't want to say like, it sound like the old man now. Yeah, yeah, sure. Getting <laughs> sure. worried about, about, you know, younger generations. But, you know, in the past, it just seems like you had a society with a lot of kids, right? In which, you know, if you had a brother, they're going to double dare you to do something. And you had in some ways show your like, okay, I'm going to go to the, 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 the high dive. Okay. Yeah, sure, sure. And I'm, I'm not going to just jump off. I'm going to, I'm actually going to go head first yeah. uh, and dive right into that pool. Um, I, I just wonder today if um, even with kind of like my, 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 uh, my wife is teaching uh, third grade and she asked, the kids, well, what do you guys do together? And they, they all play video games you know, um, on the weekends and they're not interacting with, with kids enough, but this is why I think like sports, sports is still like a really good thing yep. for kids. Cause you have to take risks. You have to prove yourself. Um, and all these things, but I see, I think like the military must be a little bit worried about, uh, maybe a generation of people in which maybe they're going to have to then force them to take yeah. certain risks. So, I, I mean, I can't speak for what the military is and is not worried about. I can speak for what I'm worried about as someone who's, you know, who's been active duty and is currently a reservist. And yeah, I share your concerns for sure. Uh, I think, you know, a couple of things that, and this is obviously a longer conversation, but there, there's, we often, we want to think of the military as sort of like the warrior class, uh, because that's how it has been for much of the history of the West, right? Like we, we mm-hmm. think back to the Spartans and we sort of glorify the, uh, the warrior class and the Greek city states, um, and there was certainly part of those traditions that were inherited through mo- throughout most of the West up till the very recent re- recent day. I think now it's just it's just not that way. And if you want to find that, I think you can find elements of that in some of the more elite um, elite like highly physical units. You know, special operations command um, type of units, uh, some Marine Corps units. I think. I think even even um, uh, most of the Air Force, really, and this I'm speaking as an Air Force guy, most of the Air Force is just kind of taken over by like bureaucratic, technocratic um, attitudes and behaviors that really erode the the warrior spirit in that way. Um, and there are not char- there are not opportunities for character formation like there like there may have been in years past. Uh, so it's a, it's definitely a huge problem. However, I will also say I'm really not sure that the that our times demand it. I mean, I think, I think like our, our humanity demands it. I think it's a good thing to be, to be well-formed, but, uh, I don't, I don't know if we need a warrior class because the problems that we face are not unique to us. Um, I will say, however, in, in a counter counterpoint to that, that, uh, you know, China, China recognizes this, is, recognizes this is a problem, right? Russia recognizes this is a problem that the West has to deal with. And China might have to deal with some of it, and Russia probably has to deal with a little bit more of it, but not to the extent that the U.S. does. So, yeah, definitely a problem for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're right. I mean, not needing to have a, a warrior class is yeah, important to, to stress in, in our times. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's just interesting that, um, you know, something you mentioned technocratic way of, of looking at things. Um, things like metaverse, it's a... Uh, it's interesting that like it's there to somewhat solve, they market it right as if it's there to solve a problem like okay the need for more community mm-hmm. um, but it actually you never really address the real problem it's not gonna it's not going to 
solve that problem. But there's, there has to be another way of, of actually addressing that. But it, it, in some ways, it's putting its finger on the issue, uh, the lack of, of community, of relationship. That's true, yeah. So, it, it does raise an interesting question, though, for me, which is how do tech companies always, always delude themselves into thinking that they are solving a real problem with a good solution, <laughs> you know? There, there are tech yeah. companies, there are really two kinds of, well, there, I guess there are three. This is like, this is like Zach's pyramid of, of tech company hierarchy, right? Uh, at the bottom level of that pyramid are people solving problems that don't exist, right? And so that, that's, the, that's most of them, right? That's the biggest part of the pyramid. You're solving a problem that does not exist. This is a solution in search of a problem. The vast majority of tech companies go there. The second tier is this is a bad solution to a bad problem, right? So this is a real problem that you've identified that needs to be fixed. This is a bad solution to it. That's the second most, most common tech company. At the very top, the unicorn tech company, and unicorn normally means something different in tech terms, but you know the 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 very rare tech company is one that has a good solution to a real problem. <laughs> but but so, the vast so majority fall into those metaverse? two. The metaverse is definitely in tier two, and and Facebook is as well. Okay. But the problem with tier two is that you know the the solution in search of a problem normally pretty much harmless, and those things sort of get weeded out by the market uh, because there is no real problem that they're trying to address. The problem with tier two is that those bad solutions end up often magnifying the problems they're trying to solve. And so in Facebook's case, Twitter's case, right? Hey, we need like, we need platforms for community and discourse and fellowship building. And they build these just like completely toxic online cesspools of filth and somehow delude themselves into thinking, yeah, we're solving the world's problem by connecting everybody. Look, 10 years ago, people were, <laughs> people were not nearly as connected, but now we have, you know, an empirical, uh, empirical validation of the six degrees of separation theory. Isn't it wonderful? Uh, and yeah. no, it's not wonderful at all. It's terrible. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, once we get Twitter communication is going to be great and yet communication <laughs> yeah. breakdown. Yeah. Um, same thing with community. Um, yeah, I'm starting to sound like a Luddite, so you might have to rescue me here. No, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I think, you know, I think, if my if my tripartite theory of tech companies is right, then we should really be Luddites towards about 95% of the technology in our lives, right? Yeah, and you know, the Luddites, I mean, just to put in a good word for them, I mean, they weren't, <laughs> against, they weren't against technology. Yeah. But they were for, like, uh, technology that's ordered properly. Right, that's, right. That actually does, like, you know, um, allow for genuine things like um, art and skill yeah. and craftsmanship and ultimately eudaimonia, right? That's right? So it, we just have to be a little bit more thoughtful. This yeah. is why I always wonder, I'm like, what are the discussions like when they're coming up with these ideas, like you, um, in these tech companies? Like, all right, this is, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. What are the discussions like, how they think about things? And, and actually getting a good philosopher like Hubert Dreyfus in there, I mean, I, I wouldn't say he's the best philosopher. Sometimes when you hear, you know, you read his writings on, on God, you're yeah. kind of like, wait, wait a minute. Dude. Yeah. You just need to but go he, read But he's incisive at thinking through the technological questions, right? Which is really what yeah. you're getting at. Yeah. 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 Here at my work, I, I bring up Heidegger sometimes and, and everybody just, I mean, the minute I mention Heidegger, they just think I'm a Nazi too. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I mean, and I mean, it's kind of like, like Carl Schmidt in that regard, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how long Carl Schmidt was in in a member of uh, the National Socialist. Probably not that long, but yeah, Heidegger. I mean, I like. Yeah, I don't want to reduce him to that. Yeah, and he's he has tons of problems. Um, but there's a great essay that he has called "The Essay Concerning Technology" um, that I just I just think is right on uh, this kind of technological worldview that we're just kind of stuck in. And, you know, some of it, his, his last interview with Der Spiegel, and this gets a little bit at that re-enchantment stuff mm -hmm. uh, we were talking about. Uh, he talks about waiting for uh, the, the gods. Um, I mean, I think he intentionally, to yeah, be provocative, yeah, yeah. puts that in there. He's kind of into that, like, German romantic, um, you know, pagan stuff a little bit too much, yep, maybe. But, yep. but you know, the sense that we need to return to something like a re-enchantment that's maybe properly Christocentric as like what Jasani was calling for um, is, is a good way kind of 
out of this, if you want to call it like imminent frame that we're all stuck in, Mm -hmm. um, coming up with solutions, supposed solutions, but making to, to problems that either don't exist or making the problem even worse. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, it, yeah, Heidegger, I, I don't know. I'm not for recovering uh, Heidegger. Or, I mean, <laughs> but he was on, he was on to something. I gotcha. Yeah, no, and, for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, as one of my, uh, one of my friends in college mistakenly said once, uh, trying to say even a blind squirrel finds a nut. He uh, said, even a blind man finds a squirrel <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I jokingly uh, use that uh, use that version of the maxim when, uh, when appropriate. Uh, well, Robert, this has been great. We're just about out of time. Uh, remind me again. Remind my listeners how can people find and follow your work? Yeah. Um, so every now and then I have an article coming out through Word on Fire. Um, I also have my own personal website, robertmixa.com. I think that's right. Yep. Um, I'll link it. And uh, yeah. So. Um, I'm a fellow at the Word on Fire Institute, so if people are really interested in kind of the philosophy of education, um, I'm trying to kind of link that up with, you know, theology, just philosophy, and just link all the three of them together. So if they're interested in kind of like, well, what would a Catholic, um, like a philosophy of education look like, uh, they can find my more of my work at the Word on Fire Institute. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Robert. It was fun. Uh, I think next time Thank I'll, you, I'll have you and Andrew on together. We can, we can talk about maybe Luigi Giussani and some other things. So it'll be fun. Oh, that would be great. I look forward to it. Great. And to my listeners, if you have a question for uh, Robert, I'd be happy to pass it along. So send me an email, Zach, Z-A-C at creedlepodcast.com. Let me know what you thought of the episode. And until next time, God bless you. Thank you.